Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, conversations about impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose, even more than your why. Impact is where your unique business and self meet the world and contribute to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is Jennifer Kenning. Jen is a trailblazer, collaborator, and change maker who has quickly risen to become one of the most recognized voices in impact investing. A frequent speaker, moderator, and guest lecturer, Jen is committed to building the impact investing ecosystem while leading a line an independent fiduciary and impact specialist firm that she co-founded in 2014. Welcome to the podcast, Jen. I'm delighted to have you here. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. So how did you come to focus on impact investing? Why is it important to you? It's important to me for a couple reasons. Um, One is I think we're in a time and place when we have to actually consider multiple factors when making investments and philanthropic decisions, if we're really going to drive social and environmental change. And I Mm. feel like the best tool that we have is our financial system, is our financial capital across different spectrums, which I can elaborate on later. But if you take it to more personal level, you know, I spent my twenties building my career, uh, climbing the corporate ladder, chasing money, chasing titles, um, really was trying to prove that I was enough. And I did a really great job in building my career. But what no one knew is that in the evenings, I was struggling with severe depression. Mm. Part of my way of getting through that was working with homeless people in Los Angeles on Skid Row and in Santa Monica. And I really felt that there was a bridge that was missing. There were people that had fell on hard times, didn't have strong social networks, and were looking for an opportunity when they're often invisible to everyone else um, because we stereotype it. Um, The system is pretty complex. Um, And I realized, why would I just be doing this at night and on the weekends? Why am I not doing this during the day? And so I started to look at what are my unique value adds and where do I sit in the system? And started to say, why can't I bridge abundance and scarcity and help people that have extraordinary amounts of wealth or even any types of wealth kind of bridge that gap so that the world works for 7.8 billion people, not just 1% of the people, yeah. and that we don't sacrifice the environment at the same time. Hmm. I love that. I, uh, I know I read in an interview that you mentioned that going to Africa was a bit of was somewhat of a changing experience for you. Was that sort of part of that whole awakening? Yeah. I would say that my journey and impact began in 2008, 2009, which is an interesting time, obviously, in the financial system, um, working with families. And so in 2013, I had a really profound opportunity to go to Africa with the Miller Center um, and some clients and next gens. Um, and really see social enterprises on the ground solving real problems for the first time. I had been investing in them and looking at them and really understanding the ecosystem, but to see it with your own eyes is a different experience. And I had seen this in Nicaragua in 2011. Um, And so when I went to Africa in 2013, I looked at 12 social enterprises 
working with the entrepreneur, really understanding the terrain, what do they need? They need solutions that we can't really fathom because our Western viewpoint doesn't actually work everywhere. Right. Um, and so for me, that was super eye-opening. And I came back kind of with three things. One is that this is the way that we actually solve problems, right? This is investing in people and in businesses that solve problems that create real solutions is the path forward rather than traditional philanthropic capital. We need philanthropic capital, right? And I can talk, you know, elaborate on that in a little bit if you'd like. But really, number one is there was a ton of opportunity. Number two is that there's a ton of opportunity in the emerging markets that's untapped, right? right. That investors in the U.S. should actually look at those opportunities because I believe that there have been and there will be enormous returns um, that will also have huge social and environmental benefits. Mm -hmm. And then last, I just really felt that, you know, I was put here to do something beyond just traditional wealth management. Um, and for me, this was like the last sign I needed to leave uh, my former firm, Asperian, which I loved, to create a line, right? Mm. I felt like the only way we were going to get capital to move, especially in tough terrains, in a blended capital structure was if we had an intermediary like line that could actually help clients do that. Right. Well, I'm, I'm, that sounds like a major understanding from you being on the ground, being able to see things actively happening in, uh, in both in our first world environment and third world, for, to use that old terminology, I guess. How, how does, so just so that people can understand, how does, uh, there's a couple of terms that probably people hear more often, like socially responsible investing. Mm -hmm. SRI and environmental social governance, ESG investing. How, how do people, how's that distinguished from impact investing or is it all part and parcel of the same thing? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the aligned point of view, which is obviously my personal point of view, is that it's all underneath the same umbrella, right? Mm -hmm. And that umbrella is impact investing. But I do think that each individual investor or philanthropist or even, you know, participant in society has to define impact investing for themselves. I actually believe we're all impact investors because <laughs> every investment that we make has an impact, whether it's positive or negative. Right. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And then there's a spectrum of how you can do impact investing. Right. And if you think about, if we start on the far left, we could start with just philanthropic grants. We could tie our grants back to metrics and outcomes, outputs, um, we can then move into more innovative philanthropy and then we move into the investment world. When we get in the investment world, we have a couple tools which I can define what you just asked me. And one of them starts with really social responsible investing, which has been around since the Quakers, right? It's been around right. a long time. And social responsible investing in its you know original state was essentially divesting from the things that go against your values. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you're focused on lung cancer, you probably don't want to own tobacco. Right. So you're divesting. Right. If you look at the apartheid in 1978, before the divestment movement around fossil fuels, that was the largest divestment movement in history in South Africa. So you're essentially taking out stocks and bonds that don't align with your values or contradict kind of what your mission is. Um, we call it negative screening in a sense. 
-hmm. Then if you move, continue to move to the right, we believe if you're going to divest, you, you also should engage, right? Divestment doesn't move the needle enough. Companies don't re recognize when we pull the dollars out, right, until it gets to a substantial amount. And even then, it tends to be immaterial. But they do recognize when we're pulling dollars out and we're bringing shareholder uh, initiatives to the board, right, where we're saying, Exxon, we need you to disclose because we need you to actually communicate with the public around what's important um, and the things. And they fought disclosure for over nine years, right? So engagement wow. does work. Engagement drives women on boards. It drove Starbucks to start recycling a recycling campaign in 2013. Uh, it took a nine-year effort on behalf of many people to get Exxon to just finally get over that battle in 2018. And so we believe if you're going to be a social responsible investor, you also should also be an advocate investor where you're raising your voice and we're changing corporate behavior. And mm -hmm. then as you move farther to the right, that's where we get into kind of think of it as proactive leaning into your investments, right? You're tilting your investments towards the things you want to make a change in or that you believe in or you see as the future economy that align with your values. And inside of that realm is where you get ESG, environmental, social, and governance, right? That's not its own asset class. That's mm -hmm. a lens in which to look at each asset class, to look at the underlying corporation or the underlying municipality or how are our bonds actually the proceeds being used? What are they investing in, right? We're looking at what are the environmental, social, and governance factors of those companies or municipalities or entity in order to make our investment decision. And then if you move farthest to the right um, on the impact spectrum before you get to traditional investing, you're actually looking at, you know, public and private markets where you're having deep impact, right? Which I think goes beyond what we talk about when we talk about ESG. What mm -hmm. I'll leave you with is I want to just quickly define impact from industry standards as well as something that we deeply believe in at Align, which is the key is intentionality, right? Being intentional with your investment decisions and ultimately your investment execution and actively measuring your financial return. You could be aiming for a concessionary return or in most cases, a market rate return. And you're actively measuring the output and outcomes of the social and environmental impact of those investments. So mm -hmm. the key words are intentionality, actively measuring, financial returns, social and environmental returns. Hmm. Well, it's great to hear you talking about things in terms of measurability, because that's been one of the, I, I guess, uh, criticisms of, of uh, impact investing. And even though there's been a lot written about how it actually does meet uh, you know, market rate returns. There, there was actually, have you heard of a book called Lean Impact, L-E-A-N Impact? I have it's, heard of it, yes. Okay, um, just I, for everyone, I, I actually interviewed the author in the podcast, Anne Mae Chang, and her big mandate is, is a, applying lean startup principles to um, non, the nonprofit world and really looking at how can you have impact measure the outcomes and not be looking at so many short-term 
views that really reflect the, the short-term and, and uh, uh, funding perspective rather than looking at outcomes. So it's, it's, it's an exciting thing to see some metrics come behind it and actual data to support this approach. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm a big firm believer in that. I believe we would have different results in our philanthropic capital if we actually held nonprofits to a more rigorous standard. And I think mm -hmm. that falls on the, it falls on the philanthropist, right? Rather than just writing a check, really understanding what that's going to go towards. Yeah. Well, what do you see as the role of philanthropy versus government versus impact investing? I mean, you've referred to it already. You obviously see a role in the, in the financial markets in that realm. How do you see the three kind of fitting together or, or do you not see that? Oh, no, I absolutely think they fit together. And I'll give you two examples. So we, we actually need all three legs of the stool if we're going to be successful, right? If we're going to even have a chance at accomplishing the 17 sustainable development goals, Mm -hmm. really eradicating poverty on the globe those, and reversing climate change. Those are the UN goals that you're referring to, yes, right? Yes, the UN yeah. Sustainable Development Goals. Mm -hmm. There's 17 of them. They were set in 2015, and they're goals that we collectively agreed as 168 nations to try to accomplish by 2030. And they're pretty radical, right? No poverty, um, no hunger. Mm -hmm. Everyone has access to clean water and sanitation. I mean, we have close to 800 million people that don't have access to clean water globally. We have almost 2.3 billion people that don't have access to sanit proper sanitation. Wow. These have rippling effects. If we just stay with water and sanitation for a minute, when you think about the role of philanthropy, government, and investors, what you could argue is the role of water and sanitation is usually at the municipality or government level. But when you go into the third world, it breaks down. And what we've been doing for the last few decades is we've been take, tackling that problem with nonprofit dollars. Right? We've been focusing on building wells and uh, additional boreholes and systems mm -hmm. that bring water to the people, right? right? Mm -hmm. Which is great, but 95% of those wells are broken after six to 12 months. Really? There's no wow. maintenance program of, uh, associated with them, right? How do, we, mm -hmm. how do we continue to upkeep them? How do we hold the community accountable? How do we hold the government accountable? How do citizens who are living most of the time on less than $2 a day actually pay into a community water action committee fund to support the maintenance of that well or borehole? And when you think about that, we need different types of capital. We need the private investors to come in and, and loan the upfront capital to having this right system and getting it off the ground and maintaining it while the community builds up its reserves. And then we need nonprofits to execute on the ground, mm. right? We need them to innovate solutions to be able to not only build them, but also repair and maintain them and make sure the water quality is good and that they're gonna last for 15 to 20 years, that we're gonna to get to see the value of the asset. And if all three parties were doing what they, and it's really four parties, because I included the beneficiary. Right. If all four parties were actually taking an active approach in that solution, we could argue that we have a win-win-win, rather than either the philanthropist taking the brunt of it or the investors taking the brunt of it. 
The second example I would give is when we think about what a lot of impact investments are trying to do, we're trying to solve inefficiencies in either systems, government, or just the way we function in society, right? So if we think about, you know, the infrastructure issues we face in the U.S., let's just take California right now, right? We, it's on fire from mm. top to bottom pretty much. Yeah. If we look at that, it's a lack of infrastructure, right? We haven't invested in the infrastructure we needed over the last 40 to 50 years. We deferred our maintenance, Mm-hmm. $2 trillion of infrastructure that's needed in the U.S. alone. If the private capital started to say, this is what I need to get from a return perspective on my bonds. This is how long I'm willing to lock up my capital. These are the qualities I'm looking for. This is the credit quality. This is the duration. And then they said, and I want to focus on helping utility companies get into the 21st century and prevent the issues that we're seeing with climate change, all of a sudden that capital can start to flow to the to those issue areas, right? Because now we're mm-hmm. focusing on the use of proceeds. Right. Now we're ending, we end up saving not only the company or the government or the local state and federal government money in the end, what because we're preventing things. A lot of times we're doing things after the fact, right? We're right. reactive. They yeah. cost us more money. It's going to cost billions, if not trillions of dollars to clean up the fires from 17, 18, and now 19. And mm-hmm. that doesn't factor in the loss of life. Right. When we could have invested and used the private capital investment dollars up front and had the government benefit on the back end and take it over once it was fully implemented. And mm-hmm. then when we think about philanthropy, philanthropy should be around education should be around things that we can only use philanthropic dollars for. There's plenty of things in that front, right? We need philanthropic dollars right now to take all the people that are having to evacuate and make sure they have a place to go and make sure they have food. Mm -hmm. Because not everyone is wealthy, even though we're in California and it appears that way. There are people in Sonoma County that are workers that don't have much savings. Sure. They don't have the resources to deal with the situation. Exactly. Yeah. Well, this kind of ties in with one of the uh, things you talked about in an interview I read, which is about a a big takeaway you had that no matter how good your idea is, the market has to be ready. And I've been talking about companies strategically and operationally aligning with the impact they want to have for years. And it's not only now something or recently that's it's something people really understand. So what's been your takeaway or what has that takeaway meant for you and Align? Yeah, if we, we talk about it specifically for Align and what we've been building um, over the last five years, I would say we were way ahead of kind of where the market was going, right? Hmm. I saw where the market was going. I saw trends in 2011, 12, and 13. Mm-hmm. And I could have waited right until 17 to leave my prior firm, which I loved. Um, I had a really great job and opportunity and life was a lot easier in some sense. (laughs) Um, But I actually knew that we needed to build the intermediary, the firm, the infrastructure, the processes. Um, We needed to develop a thesis. We needed to work with advisors and clients. We needed to test the model. And so I often reflect back now and say we we were a few years ahead of maybe where the market was, mm-hmm. but I think we're well positioned today 
to capitalize on that going forward. And what I mean by that is not so much around company profits. It's actually our mission is to drive more capital into this market and to help families, foundations, and institutions make good decisions around all of their capital, their philanthropic capital, their investment capital, their political and their advocacy capital, their social network capital, and their human capital. And how do you use all those levers? And then how do you actually trickle it down to consumption capital, right? Where we spend our money every day and how we align our money with the companies and where does our money sleep at night in terms of banking? Well, and you've been a real trailblazer in that regard. And I think that holistic approach that you just described of every aspect of capital, where are you putting it and what's, how are you maximizing impact in that way, I think is, is a really powerful thing. And I read a statistic that uh, women and millennials are set to inherit between 30 and $42 trillion over the next 25 years. And they are really looking at impact investing really seriously to the point of they, they abandon their old advisors and move to new ones when they, they start to have control of the capital. It's that important to them. Absolutely. And not, let me just expand on a couple of things in both realms. So if you think about women, women are often disempowered in the financial services industry. Mm-hmm. Advisors tend to focus on the husband or the patriarch uh, the right. who made the money. The women is often um, kind of nascent in the conversation. I speak at a lot of conferences, especially a lot of family office conferences. There's very few women in the audience, mm-hmm. very few women making the investment decisions for their families. Why this is an issue is women on average outlive their husbands on average nine years. They also mm-hmm. make 80% of the consumption decisions. Right. So they are right. driving the bottom line and they invest differently. They invest in a more balanced approach. It's not just what's the financial return. It's also what is the impact back to society? What is the impact going to be on my children and my grandchildren? Mm-hmm. Let me tie it, take women to the millennials and then Gen Z, which is the generation after the millennials. Mm-hmm. The millennials are going to inherit an enormous amount of wealth, but before it gets to the millennials, it's going to get to the wife right, or the woman. So the woman inherits it first and then it goes to the children mm-hmm. and then it goes to the grandchildren. And so if you think about that, there's a role for the women to play in this movement, right? But they're also often disempowered in it, right? I work with a lot of widows, uh, divorcees, single moms, both on the beneficiary side and on the investment side. Mm-hmm. And I get this almost weekly is, Um, I want to be empowered because I want to make good decisions because I want to be able to move this forward, not only for my own family, but for society as a large. And so when you ask me the question on idea to kind of, is the market ready? I actually think the financial service industry is slow to adapt Mm -hmm. as well as community foundations and donor advice funds, right? And if you think about, they're just now starting to dip their toe in the water. Mm -hmm. Well, one could argue the market is there, right? They're behind. Now they're it's there already. They catch up. Right. And so whenever I'm looking at a, when our team is looking at an investment opportunity, whether it's a direct deal, a fund, a fund of funds, or even a public market option, we actually look at what is the market opportunity, right? Where mm-hmm. are the trends? If you look at the millennial generation, they're not driving cars. 
They're using shared rides. They're right. scooters. They're taking public transportation. They don't necessarily want to own large houses and cars. They would rather do Airbnb or shared, you know, living experiences or be able to move from one place to the other. The future work is going to be completely different. Mm -hmm. um, if you think about how they purchase and make purchasing decisions, they are buying less. They're starting to go to thrift stores and using things like rent the runway. If you look at kind of right. the renting market, it's a massive industry. And then overlay yeah. that with technology, the future looks different than bricks and mortars or, you know, we're all going to go buy cars and then get insurance and the rippling effect of that, right? And mm -hmm. then Gen Z is a completely different generation. They take action. Not that the millennials didn't, but Gen Z is Greta. It is... People, it is the Parkland survivors, you know, raising their voice on day two and saying enough is enough. Right. right? It is that generation between millennials, which is the largest workforce generation today, and Gen Z. These people are also demanding things of their employers. So employers have to look at it and say, am I going to be able to attract and retain this talent in the future? Right. And it's Absolutely. actually critical for their success. Yeah. Yeah, so it's important that companies look at that. And, and I think we're seeing a shift in that direction. I mean, when you think about uh, Larry Fink's statement to CEOs early this year, Larry Fink is the CEO yeah. of BlackRock, for those of you who know, it's the world's largest um, asset investment firm. And then also the Business Roundtable in August, redefining the corporation as a multi-stakeholder venture. What, what are your thoughts on that trend? Because I was quite excited about that, even if it's you know, at the beginning, perhaps more cosmetic, but uh, to me, it indicates a kind of shift in thinking where these folks are seeing this is the direction things are going. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I think it's an excellent sign of momentum. I mm. think we have to be cautious and we have to see what actions follow, right? Mm -hmm. Right. If you think about it, B Corps, and even there are public companies that are B Corps, they've been leading this charge for a while, right? Mm -hmm. We've been saying this for Absolutely. at least a decade, right? Right, that right. The, the purpose of business is to benefit the shareholders, benefits its suppliers, labor practices, employers, employees. It's, it's benefits society. It's got a multi-stakeholder approach, right? At least mm -hmm. three or four, right? And it should have a purpose, right? What's its purpose in society and how is it mission- Aligned. So I think it's going to be in the action and we've got to hold them accountable to that action, right? I think the other thing is we've seen enormous movement in the last 60 days alone. And we, we need to take a pause and really say the wave is coming, right? This mm -hmm. is not five to 10 years from now, right? If you look at the UC system, Right? They divested of fossil fuels of both their pension fund as well as their endowment. It's roughly, I think it's something like $83 billion. In That's University of California, right? University of California in less mm -hmm. than 30 days. They didn't give their managers a month, I mean, a year <laughs> or multiple years. It was 30 right. days. Yeah. That came after the business roundtable. And so if you think about just those two defining events, if I was an investor, one, I would look to see what do I own? Whether you have just a 401k or you have a bank account with the savings or you just have a bank account, where does my money sleep at night, right? What is that bank doing? 
I'd look, if I was an investor, what do I own? Because you want to be aware of what you own to make sure you're not owning things that in the end don't have the value that they may state they have today because of externalities that aren't priced in, right? Mm -hmm. Those are future liabilities that are not priced into today's price. Right. So, Jen, you recently uh, wrote an article for Entrepreneur Magazine, The Five Mistakes That Mission-Driven Entrepreneurs Should Avoid, which is such a great title. What are the, some of the things there that you really want to highlight? Yeah, I mean, I spoke to some of them in the podcast earlier today, but I think, you know, the article is written, things we see when we do diligence companies to invest in them, and we only look at mission-driven companies because we're an impact firm, and you know, some of the things we look for is people focus on valuation, right? So much is on valuation. And we often say, make sure you're not giving away your company um, because the investor is trying to drive up the valuation on their part. Um, look at your investors, really, really vet your investors, make sure they're aligned with your intentions. Um, and some of the other tips that I give in the article are focused on things I've learned in my own business. Um, so they're not only just from the investor's perspective, but they're also giving some insight into kind of how I built Align and the things I learned along the way that I thought other entrepreneurs that are building companies should know. Yeah. And undervaluing your team, that's such an important one in considering how you're building your company. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, a lot of what you're saying and, and are talking about is really um, – I mean, I mentioned already, I think you're a real trailblazer in this realm. So what do you feel is, is real, what does real impactful leadership look like? And how has your leadership style evolved over time? It's a great question. Um, I'm going to answer the first one and then I'll tie myself back to it. Uh, <laughs> second. Mm -hmm. So I think you got to live your values and you have to really take into account all of these stakeholders when you're building your firm or when you're building your product or service. You can't just focus on one thing. Today, you've got to focus on how does it affect my stakeholders, right? What's our environmental footprint? How are we banking with a local or community or a bank that's living up to our values? Um, do we have representation on gender and diversity at the board level, at the management level, and at the employee level? Uh, do we compensate our employees fairly and do we give them a shot at recognizing the American dream, which we could argue may be dead? Like, do we give them ownership, right? Do we give them, you know, living wages with excellent benefits and time off to take care of their health, to be able to take care of their children, to be able to pursue advanced degrees, uh, to be able to be with family and have a balanced work-life balance. And I will say, sometimes that's hard in a growing business, right? If you ask yes. any of my employees, I'll be very honest, we work really hard and we struggle with the work-life balance, right? But we're all committed. If you ask any one of us why we do this, I think you'd be surprised to say, wow, it's genuine. It's like deep, like it's in our core. So yeah. I do think you can't mask it. You have to lead because you believe it. And it's ingrained in who you are or your clients and you want to be, you know, that resource for your clients. I would say in terms of my own leadership style, I, I've said this numerous times, I'll say it again. You have to constantly evolve as a leader. You have to continuously reinvent yourself, right? I 
have, I'm part of EO, Entrepreneurs Organization, so I can be around other entrepreneurs and challenge myself as an entrepreneur. I have an executive coach who's constantly challenging me to take it to the next level. I think the best things that as a leader is to surround yourself with the right people. My people, our team is our best asset. Yes, our clients are extraordinary. They're amazing in every way. They're doing extraordinary work in the world. But our biggest asset is our people, is training the next generation to be the advisory firm of the future. And then our second biggest asset is our investors, right? The investors that are going alongside us, the investors that their values are aligned with our values, right? I think the biggest thing I've done as a leader is to empower my people to continuously transform myself and to align with the right investors who are mission-driven first and financial second, and they're really building it with us. Because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, a leader is only as good as the village that surrounds them. Right, and yeah. You, if we're gonna tackle the 17 sustainable development goals and we're truly gonna eradicate poverty, like eradicate poverty, I mean, it almost seems impossible. I still believe it's possible in my lifetime. Yeah, um, I do too. And reverse climate change by 2045 or 2050. We need real solutions that are transformational and we need a village of people to be able to do that. It's not going to be one person or one firm. It's going to be the collective ecosystem moving in a direction that is in alignment. Mm. Well, how do you go about creating a village like that? I mean, I of course, there are things external, people external to the firm, but what about within the firm? How do you, how do you create the kind of culture that allows you to tackle issues like that and really stay committed to your values? Yeah, that's a great question. And I actually think it evolves, right? When you're building a firm, it's one thing. When you start to grow and scale and you double or triple the size of your employees, it's super hard to continue <laughs> to build that culture. Yeah. I think it, it really narrows down to three things. One is we take a long time to interview and make sure that people are really cut from the same cloth and that we're tailoring what we're expecting them to do in the role they're going to play on the team to their highest and best use and their unique value adds. So we're positioning. I love Jim Collins when he says, put people on the bus and make sure they're in the right seats, right? They might be <laughs> on the right bus, but they may be in the wrong seat. Right. Right. And so we take a long time to really identify the right people for our culture I often say, if I don't want to go on vacation with you or go in the trenches with you, I probably don't want you on the team, right? Because we're going to go into some tough terrains together and have to navigate through it, right? I've, been, I've seen poverty on six continents. It's not pretty. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen climate change at its worst, both in the developing world and here at, at home. Um, and so that's the interview process because your biggest mistake, especially as you're building your company, or as an employee, is the wrong cultural fit, right? Because it's expensive on both sides if you make a wrong hire. Yeah, absolutely. I think the second thing is, is you got to let people have their voice. Let them add value. You got to own that. You, you got to let them fail fast. Um, you got to let them speak up, contribute to what you're building. You can't, and I would say this is something I'm always working on because I have almost two decades of experience, right? 
Sometimes mm-hmm. it's easier for me just to do it when in reality I need to let someone else do it so that they can then own it and be the champion of it down the well, road. That's a, that's a chronic challenge, I think, for founders especially because you have such a vested stake in, in ensuring things are successful and sometimes you feel like you're the only one who can do it, especially yeah. at the beginning. Absolutely. And then the last thing is, and I think this is so important, is making sure you're appreciating your employees in the way that they want to be appreciated. Workplace appreciation is super important. You know, if you haven't read listeners, if you haven't read the the five love languages, there's one for work. That's a great book. Yeah. Really amazing because we often reward our employees in ways that actually don't resonate with them. Employees do not leave jobs for money. They often leave jobs because they're uninspired, underappreciated, and they don't see their role in the future. When you start to look to see how do they feel appreciated and you tailor that to them, like amazing things can start to happen. So I'll use myself as an example. I'm going to be more, I'm going to feel appreciated when people do acts of service for me that save me time because time is my most precious resource in leading an organization and ecosystem. And so when my team takes something off my plate and they do something for me, that's considered an act of service. That's my love language. That's the way I feel that they have my back. Mm -hmm. And so we often reward our employees with more, you know, slightly more comp that they don't really see or gift cards, or a holiday party, when in reality, people might want to have professional development. They might want to have um, some expense paid for their, you know, a gift card towards a vacation. Or they might want quality time with the CEO or their manager, because that's their love language. And so I think if we're going to build a culture where we really appreciate our people, and we really are all moving in the same direction, and then ultimately a village, we have to be able to do so in a way that actually has them get that. Yeah, and have it be something valuable to them. Yeah, for sure. Well, Jen, I'm, I'm going to, before we get to the rapid round, I'm going to ask you a, kind of a big question. So I'll, I'll let you take this in whatever direction makes sense to you. But my question for you is really, what's your dream for the planet? My dream is that the world works for all 7.8 billion people now not 50 years from now Hmm. that we bridge abundance and scarcity and we actually i do believe we have enough resources we just don't get them to the right places and the right people yeah and that we figure out how to do that using all four legs of the stool i know there's only three but we include the beneficiary in that equation Hmm. and that we do so in a way that doesn't compromise our planet that every decision that we make, we look at the environmental factor. And I think if we, if each of us just took on one thing that was near and dear to us and that we wanted to move the needle on, collectively, we would be able to radically move the needle in this direction. Hmm. I love that. That's a, that's a great vision and a big one. So I'm with you on that. <laughs> well, so uh, I always ask at the end of these interviews a rapid round of three questions about impact. Are you ready? I'm ready. Great. The first one is, what is the biggest thing you've learned about having impact? There's no one way to do it, right size, one way to measure it. It's very personal. Mm-hmm. That's great. The second question is, what's the one thing you've consistently done that's contributed 
contributed to your success and impact the most? Lead with empathy. Mm. Empathy, even in with colleagues, beneficiaries, investees, as well as that everyone's kind of doing the best they can for the most part. Um, and that it takes, again, a village to do it. So leading with empathy. Mm, love that. The last question is, what's one insight or piece of advice you'd share with another business owner who's asking, how can I have more impact? How can I contribute more? Great question. Or rapid question. Um, think about the one thing you want to move the needle on. Then look at what you're doing towards that today both in your philanthropic portfolio, your investment portfolio, your banking and your consumption, and then figure out what more you can be doing. And I'm pretty sure that that aligns back with your business as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. They're all so tied together. Well, Jen, thank you so much for sharing your perspectives on this whole realm of impact investing and, and how we can really affect significant social and environmental change in the world so that it's a place that's a good one for all of us. And uh, I want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And I'll leave the listeners with that we're all impact investors. So let's know what we own and let's own what we own. Yeah, I love that. Well, if people want to get in touch with you, Jen, what's the best way for them to reach you? You can visit our website at www.alignimpact.com. Um, you can reach out to us on LinkedIn um, and you can find me at Jen with two N's at alignimpact.com. Mm, great. Well, thank you for the work you're doing in the world, Jen. Thank you. Join us for more episodes. Subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast on iTunes or Stitcher Radio so you'll know as soon as new episodes are available. You can even help spread the word. Leave a review if you like what you've heard. Thanks for listening. Until next time, for ongoing support so you can have your own impact, join our community of entrepreneurs like you by liking the Work Alchemy Facebook page.